Now that we've got our jitters out, welcome to Something Positive for Positive People. I'm Courtney Bray. Something Positive for Positive People is a hub of informational resources for anyone who's seeking additional support, dealing with or navigating a positive STI diagnosis. A lot of our stories can interchangeably be used with anything else that can be considered as a life challenge. And a lot of these resources allow for people to navigate their way through an SCI diagnosis from the experience of people who have a positive STI. Today's episode comes with a trigger warning. I'm going to be talking with Jeannie here about something that I haven't heard often in my life experience, which is someone coming out about a sexual abuser, assaulter, and justice being served. With the political climate that we're in right now, we're at a time where we're talking about the Surviving R. Kelly documentary. A lot of that is in the media. And this conversation between Jeannie and I, we've been going back and forth a little bit around that time. I think I didn't hear about the documentary until after you and I had at least connected and then you and I ended up in conversation about it. The thing that I want to highlight here more than anything is just it's something that allows for us to hear a success story from a survivor where justice was served. I wanted to make sure to give that trigger warning up front. I wish I would have been recording earlier where you gave that whole disclaimer to me. I'm not going to make you re-say it. I just want everyone to know what Courtney is doing is like he's doing an amazing job at confronting the stigma and just being able to be there as a vessel of communicating our pains, our struggles, our successes, and just literally everything that we're going through. And I've admired a lot of his other previous podcasts. He actually gave me the strength to even be able to address it. So that's why I was so happy to join and be able to give my story because whew, there's a lot of us. And I'm happy you brought up the R. Kelly documentary, which is crazy. So if anybody didn't listen to it or didn't watch it, I suggest you go do it because I think it is just life-changing because we see the medium that we're swimming in. We're all just like little fish swimming in this water, and we don't understand what this water contains. And part of the water that we're swimming in is ignorance and our inability to see the way we have truly processed things to filter out information, which is potentially life-changing. So, like, we're not addressing abuse in our community, and I'm talking about the United States, but, like, also just globally, abuse can happen to women, it can happen to men, it can happen to everybody. I've grown as an adult to realize I don't want to address the fact that I've been abused. Nobody wants to do that because... When we do that, we feel like we're being vulnerable. And, you know, the moment you step out your door, what do you feel like you have to be guarded? The moment you post something on social media, you're going to guard yourself and, like, you only want to put out the positive thing. That's not how life works. I think that what Courtney's doing and just, like, being able to come on and, like, actually share how I got HSV2 is just, like, really amazing. So thank you, Courtney. You're more than welcome. You and I talked before about how I would probably say the wrong thing. And I think that that's a challenge in having these kinds of discussions is... Just let it all out because (laughs) then you get to know why you did something or, you know, what you're doing. (laughs) 
Right. Because you're not, you're one person. Just think of it like, you know, you've taken in so many things from stuff around you, just like I have. And that's why we react the way that we react. So, like, if we catch each other, then it's, oh, you see why we think like this. So, no, no worries at all. Yeah. One of the things that is important to me is to be able to show people that it's okay to say the wrong thing because how are we going to yes. be able to learn what the right thing is? So, when we have this conversation, please feel and know that you can correct me and there's nothing wrong with that so if i say the wrong thing like hey we want to <laughs> use this word or we don't want to go into it that way i might say the wrong word too what if i say the wrong thing <laughs> oh i can edit it out <laughs> so yeah i can do that too but um, no let us let our, all our flaws glow. <laughs> oh, absolutely. The last thing I want to touch on before I just hand everything over to you and allow you to go through your story uh-huh. is that another challenging conversation that I had was with someone I don't agree with. And this was someone who is a Trump supporter. And I have Donald Trump supporters who I follow on social media. And it helps me to understand, okay, why are you guys saying the things that you're saying? Why are you doing what you're doing? When I saw this post, it was very mean. It was ignorant. If you just looked at it, you're like, in a nutshell, what it was was just something about if you went on vacation for two weeks and came home and your basement was flooded with raccoons, you don't care who the person is who's going to get the job done because you call all these people, nobody wants to get the job done. So you find somebody, you don't care who they are, what they look like, how <laughs> evil they are, as long as they get it done. And that frightened me. So I sought to understand it. So I asked about the metaphor. And my goal in this wasn't to convince her that she was wrong or that I was right. My goal was was to get the people who scrolled through there and didn't have an opinion of it or thought, oh, yeah, she tripping or, oh, I agree with her. But get people to see, okay, this 50-year-old white woman and this 30-year-old black man who clearly disagree with each other are having a back and forth. And my whole thing was just to ask questions for clarity like okay this is what your analogy looks like am i right and it was like yeah you're right and then going through it from there just being like okay well you know this looks to me like your priorities are money and everyone else's priorities are the issues in their reality like your reality the most important thing is money in my reality the most important thing is not fearing going outside and getting shot by the police so that's what that was for I hope that people were able to see that exchange and understand that that kind of a conversation is able to be had. And that's kind of what I do with this podcast. When we do get into triggering conversations such as sexual assault is I'm a man and I've been guilty of not believing someone who has been raped, who's been sexually assaulted. I've been angered by it. I've asked the wrong questions. I've said the wrong things in response. As a result of being able to talk about this or being willing to obtain information about this, I've been able to learn and also teach other people about being able to have that conversation. Prefacing this whole conversation with that and the lovely disclaimer that you just gave, I'm going to go ahead and let you get started. So we know that you have HSV2. Are you wanting to tell us how old you are? I know that you wanted yeah. to keep your identity ugh, identity I'm, anonymous. I'm, okay, so I'm a 28-year-old woman. I have lived the majority of my 20s in a major city. I guess I can say which one. I lived in D.C. for a long time. I learned a lot of things there. I come from an immigrant background, so, like, when we first moved to the state, uh, as in I was born there, but, like, I grew up in an immigrant community, so I think having English as a second language, anything with pop culture and stuff, like, intrigued me. Seeing that people can articulate themselves so well, and these amazing people like Britney Spears really motivated me, and 
I love Justin Timberlake and I love rap culture, all of that. It's about being popular and being liked and stuff. So like, I've always looked at that as a form of motivation. And so when I moved to DC in my 20s, that's something that I wanted to as well. There's still that little person inside of you. I think that's really important to highlight because a lot of us have gone through abuse. I'm the kind of person that I just want to be accepted by everyone. I want to be loved, you know, just like a lot of people do. I feel like the society that we live in makes us, we think about popularity and we think about the amount of people that like us, you know, think about Instagram followings or Twitter following. We live in a day and age where we look at people and we see that they're popular, well-liked, and that we gravitate towards them. I think, like, when we're talking about the R. Kelly documentary or whatever, it's this thing where we see things on social media and we see the things that our spouses are doing on social media and we're influenced by that because we see that they're having a good time, that a lot of people like them, that a lot of people are conversing with them, and we're all convinced that they're good people. And that's exactly how I think I fell into the trap of being attracted to my ex that I met around, well, now it's six years ago, who I was in an abusive relationship with, who I ended up getting this diagnosis from. No shade to the diagnosis, because it actually helped my life, but all shade to him. <laughs> so I think something that I have to address is we're all healing from something. We're all vulnerable to something. My diagnosis is not what has brought me a lot of pain. My pain has been from the domestic violence that I survived, that I didn't realize I was actually surviving through until I finally made the report that I had to do after my diagnosis. When I was in a relationship with him, he was popular, he has a good job, he's also working part-time in the music industry, and he does these amazing things, like he travels a lot to these amazing music studios and stuff, and he's helping a lot of artists, and I just thought he was so cool, and being kind of a, his parents were immigrants and stuff, to be able to see the American dream come true, is like, you get starstruck by people. When you fall in love with somebody, you only see, like, the things that you think are so positive and like wow look at him everyone likes him everyone likes his his friend so why shouldn't i like him it doesn't make any sense he's surrounded by power and and i should be able to like him too so that's kind of how i felt for him then i found out mid last year that i was diagnosed with this thing and i let him know and he was like get the fuck out of here and he was saying, like, no, that's not true. And then I went and I told his friend, this is what he has, and you need to let him know. I guess he just forwarded him the message, and then this guy told me I would be dealt with since I said that to his friend. And I saw that, and I was like, I had to call the police. So that's what I did. When you say you will be dealt with, that sounds to me like a threat, but for other people... So that's what I need to highlight. Yeah, I think there's a lot of background story to this because, like, I didn't realize till later. As in, when I first met him, I was, like, super young. When you're in your early 20s, you don't really know anything. You just want to, like, hang out with people and stuff. And you want to be liked by everyone, and you want to be liked by those who are liked by many. And I think that was one of the biggest foundations for my attraction to him. I didn't realize till two years into me being 
I guess what I thought was a relationship with him that he was actually in a gang and I found out like after some time you know he's doing things that aren't right and I find out that he's selling drugs and I find out that his best friend is like this guy who I guess shoots at people and stuff as in it's just really violent stuff that when you're dealing with somebody who's a socialite or like dealing with socialites and in the entertainment industry you think there's money and power to that there's attraction to that look at how wonderful life they're living and then after a while you start to see really what's going on which I think is such a crazy coincidence that we're talking about the R. Kelly documentary because literally this is happening to girls every day. I mean, we're talking to people who are social, so sociable, so attractive, and you think, like, these are the kind of people you want to be around, and then you find out later they're in a gang. They're actually involved in crazy criminal activity you would never imagine in your life and you never get to hear about it because the thing is a lot of the people who are in, in gangs they don't talk about it or if they do they're talking about it in slang terms or very discreet terms that can be as vague as possible but you know exactly what's going on after a while been exposed to this kind of dialogue psychologists say that 70 percent of the way we communicate people is body language and so i learned that after a while with him like the way he would move or the way he would do things i realized like he's drug dealer he's in a gang and like i find out from being around his friends that this is what's actually going on which is just really crazy to me like knowing how his family is and knowing how he is like at the surface being a person like you just think oh he's just a great fun guy to be around no there's actually a lot of levels to this stuff bro i just saw that and i was like this is insane but like i'm i'm gonna keep going with this and this is the thing is like if you don't have a strong family support system then you become extremely attractive because like you're intriguing you have no one else around you and you're the perfect person to be seeked out as a victim and i haven't had a strong family support system there goes another vulnerability and wanting to be seen as attractive and stuff like those were like the main points of just beauty i guess to his being able to victimize me so yeah not knowing what you were getting into you knew this guy for what he wanted you to see and a combination of a little bit of what you wanted to see and then you suddenly look up and realize oh shit this person is dangerous did he treat you bad before you realized what yeah, was happening he did i think he started to learn more about my life and then i started seeing little changes here and there like he wasn't trying to impress me with saying we're gonna do this or that or go on this trip instead it was more like what are you doing go take a shower then go get naked and go lay in your bed and then we're going to do whatever we do and then just don't say anything about it and then it would be like that for a while and it's like why are you acting like this after we had such a good time doing this and that he starts realizing this is not a person that i can use for any kind of power this is a person that i'm just gonna take advantage of or whatever so that's clearly what he did and he started doing that more and more and then when I was in my early 20s, I was pretty poor. There's a lot of parts like where I grew up. Some people just don't really have that much money. 
and I ended up being like that. Like, I remember a stint, like, for two weeks where I'm, like, living off of $75 for, like, two weeks or something. I'm like, hey, can you help me out or whatever? And he doesn't do anything. But, like, I still want to see him because I'm, like, so attracted to this person. I'm like, oh, this is somebody that does this, this, and that. Like, you get mesmerized by their whole vibe. Like, this is who he is, like look at what he drives and does and stuff and so you just like get so sucked into that and the fact that like you think that they're giving you attention and stuff but really they're just using you for whatever they want to do I felt like at that point he was treating me as less than a person and that was just like such a low point to be at really then one day he calls me at 4 a.m and this is our relationship at this point like he's calling me at a really fucked up hours saying like hey do you want to do this this or that and I just always want to see him because then I'm like 24 years old and I'm in love or I think I'm in love then he brings his friend with him who they're both in this gang I'm not gonna say what gang it is and I get really scared and they're like hi how's it going like this is like 4 a.m or whatever and they pick me up it's like Somebody can say things and act extremely normal in some sense, but because of the things that they're doing while they're saying whatever they're saying, it just makes for an extremely crazy, awkward situation, and that's exactly what they were doing. I mean, it's 4 a.m., you're picking me up from my neighborhood. My neighborhood's not a great place to be at 4 a.m., like, what, what are you guys even doing here? And then, so, we go into my then... I don't even want to call him a boyfriend at this point. I'm just going to say an ex, I guess, because I don't even want to call him a boyfriend. I wasn't a relationship at all, and I wasn't love. And we go in the house, and they're just, like, acting so weird. And he goes to a room. He closes it behind him. And then I, I'm like, what? And so I'm just, like, following whatever that subtle move, because... This is the thing, gang culture, it just like lures you in. They didn't tell me I was in a gang, that they were trying to initiate me or in anything, but because you get so wrapped up in body language, you end up doing whatever they want you to do after a while because they've already targeted you as this vulnerable person. And so then I go with his friend to the other room. It's funny because it's like the body language is so inviting, but you know something is so wrong. And I know that whatever is going on is wrong because they know that I know that the guy that I go in the other room with, I know he has guns. And they know I know he has guns. And so I'm going to do like whatever the body language is showing me. They've already understood me to that point so well. I'm already that broken down. I'm already in such a vulnerable situation and they just don't even care. And then he's like are you scared? And I'm like trying to avoid the question in whatever way. So anyway, we end up having sex. And the only reason I have sex with this guy is because I'm afraid. Then the next morning I wake up, thank God. And then my ex is texting me and saying, Hey, um, tell his friend to go into his room. So his friend who I was in the same room as goes into the other room and I'm like, okay, I feel free, like, at this point, like, I'm not trapped. I'm feeling, like, safe that I ended up, I guess, doing whatever their plan was. I didn't protest against them. I'm free. Like, I'm good. His friend comes back from the room, and he's like, hey, no crazy stuff again. 
And I'm like, what do you mean what crazy stuff? They're saying that I sent them text messages. And I was, and of course, like I was saying, like, hey, don't be around my building or whatever. Like, guys are being creepy. And then, like, I call them curse words and stuff. And then it was like repeat, repeat messages, like, a few days before. Then they're like, don't do this and this and that. I'm thinking in my head, like, dude, I just did this because I was scared. And I know that you have guns, so, like, I did whatever you guys told me to do. Obviously, I can't say that to them. Then my ex is like, hey, come here. And so, like, I guess he intervenes, and I go in the other room. And then he was like basically telling me to give him oral sex and stuff and I'm like no I don't want like I don't want to and then it's like just do it I end up doing it and so like these are the sick processes that you just go in through when you're just so initiated with this gang culture you just feel like you end up doing things just for them just because they ask you to because you're so intimidated by literally everything they say and everything that they're doing you know if somebody calls you at 4 a.m you just feel like it's an emergency right for them it's just a game and I was just wrapped into that for such a long time so yeah that was like the height of the abuse I think after that I remember going over there a few days later my ex telling me like hey you know what happened a few days ago I was like yeah and he was like I could have killed you with a smile on his face, like, how disgusting, like... Was that his way of saying, I love you? That's his way of saying, I own you. After that, it was like, that's when you realize somebody's sick. Yeah, exactly. It's really crazy because it plays with you so much because your brain knows this is so wrong. But then, because they're playing with your spirit so much, like, the way you are as a person how empathetic you can potentially be as just a woman who just wants to be loved, you know, because they play with you so much like that, you know, everything's wrong, but they know how to make you feel like it's love. So after the abuse, you feel like it's love and it's just not love at all. And after a while, I got better. I realized I have a lot of value. I have two degrees, actually. And for a while, I guess he ended up having another girlfriend. So he was like kind of stuck on her. Thank God for me, because I didn't feel like he was bothering me as much. So I was kind of thankful for her in a way, because I knew he wasn't going to be calling me or whatever. And then at that point, I had gotten into a master's degree program. But I was so messed up at that point because of all of the psychological abuse of the gang culture and stuff because it was like when you have a gang initiation they try to psychologically manipulate you to feel like oh i love you you belong i know how to make you feel like i miss you but then you get so scared they're just such scary people and like for a while i had a really hard time just walking the street because they had so many like little ways of reconfirming that fear they instill that, and I think that they instill that in themselves, so that's why they put it out on other people, but that's not justifying anything. So for a long time, I was having an anxiety attack, so like even when I was doing my master's, I had to go to a therapist. I'm so thankful the school, like I got full tuition, full everything, because thank God I was good at grades, but just like having your street smarts, I guess. I don't know, in a messed up way, I ended up getting a lot of street smarts, but I ended up not turning it into a point of power till after graduating for a while like my ex 
he wasn't contacting me because I guess he had this new girlfriend and I was like, yeah, like I said, I was like so thankful for her in such ways that I just can't even describe. And then at the same time, I was just like having these bouts of first being scared and then having these crazy outbursts of anger that I had to deal with through therapy, through like talking to people and just writing. And my degree required me to write so much. I think I got out so much anger through that as well. And I ended up twisting literally every part of that street smarts that I had to learn from this guy into something positive for me. I didn't realize that that's what I was doing. But through all of these painful, like, I can't believe he fucking did that to me, I ended up transforming it. But here's the thing. When you're a person who has been a victim of abuse, and I really don't like calling myself a person who has been abused, but that's what it is. That's just how it is. Like, I am a victim. I'm a survivor. I'm a survivor of domestic violence. It takes you so many times to leave this person who has abused, abused you. You know, even today, I look at my abuser's social media when I'm anxious, and it calms me, which is so messed up because... This person could have killed you. They make you feel like they're God, just like how we were talking about R. Kelly. R. Kelly made his victims feel like he was God. So even those people who are abused, they won't leave him because they feel like they love him. It's not love, but that's what it makes you feel like. This guy made me feel like he's popular, he's strong, he has a good job, he has good connections, and therefore he's a person of power. As a woman, you're always seeking for, not all women, but like for me as a person, I'm always seeking the traits of being a spouse. Like you want to seek those that you saw of your father. This is a protector. This is a person of power. And you end up getting fooled by these masks that people put on. And then they end up introducing you to the psychology that is extremely messed up. So last year, I ended up getting a really good job. At this point, I'm, like, so empowered. I'm at a point in my life that no one can take me away from what I've achieved. I got my master's. I got through all of the abuse. I didn't even join their gang. I never went into prostitution. I know some women really deal with that as that's their career and stuff. And I know that there's, there's a world like that, so I'm not trying to shade them or whatever. But, like, I just felt like... I have my master's. I have a great job. Yeah, yeah, I'm doing this and that. You felt like you had different opportunities than to be a sex worker. So you just chose to go a different route. Well, yeah, like, I chose a different route. I chose a route for me. I'm free. I'm empowered. And I want to show that to him. For me, it was like, when I called him two years after we weren't together anymore, it was like me saying, look, you ain't got nothing on me. And I'm going to show you how much better than you made me think that I was. And that's what I thought I was doing because your abuser starts to feel like your family member, like, hey, hey, uncle, remember that one time you told me that I couldn't even ride a bike and now I'm driving a car? Or like, you know, like you're just rubbing stuff in your family member's face. That's what your abuser starts to look like. Even today, it's really hard to separate him from my life because he's abused me and I have to be constantly aware of that like it might feel like this but that's literally not what it is you always have to remind yourself this process is never over it just isn't and I think that's what's hard for survivors so I ended up meeting with him and we end 
up having an intimate situation for the evening and then I find out a few days later like I, I feel really sick it's like I got a crazy headache like I feel like I got the flu but then I notice like my cervix is swollen and then I go to the doctor the doctor's like no you don't have anything you're actually you're just fine um this is just razor bumps whatever I thought like I I had like symptoms that a lot of people with HSV2 have and I was googling it like crazy I'm like this is what I got doc this is what I got he's like no 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 <laughs> go home like just take some Motrin you'll be fine or I don't know he, he prescribed me something and then a few days later I'm like no man this is not what it is and so I go back to the doctor and I'm like okay I researched this I know that when you do a blood test it's not going to come out accurately because it hasn't been two months yet. There was probably like no chance in heck that any of my previous partners have given it to me because I had abstained from anything intimate for like quite a bit. But I did tell my previous partner like, hey, look, this is what this is what I'm pretty sure that I have. Go check it out. And he's a reasonable person because for the two years after being totally exempt from this gang culture, I was like, there's no way I'm going back to that. At this yeah. point? There were two years where you went to school and you had little to no contact with your abuser. Yeah. Well, we would talk sometimes, but it was like nothing. Like, as in, we wouldn't meet up or anything. He felt like he met the girl of his life, and he told me about her, and he was like, oh, she's so crazy, and she's so this and that, and she's like the type of girl who would really hang with this gang culture people, because I'm pretty sure, like, no shade again, I'm pretty sure she was in that environment where gang culture was accepted. Her family probably accepted her as well, because she she could use it as a system. If it works for you, then I think people get wrapped up in it. But I went to college, and there's people in gangs that go to college too, but as in what I'm saying is it just was never a point of power for me. Like, it would have never served a purpose for me because I've dealt in the world of being legal and respecting the law and everything like that. That's always been, like, a point of power for me. So what is it for me to, like, deal with this gang culture? But she's the kind of girl who that would be like that, but... You know, yeah. God bless her because I don't know how that's going to turn out for her. But, you know, that's everyone else has their story. But okay. that's not my story. So, yeah. Okay. So, little contact thanks to her and your relationship yeah. with your abuser was cordial at this point. Yeah, it was like nothing crazy going on. He was minding his own business and I just felt okay after a while. But, you know... Once you initiate that contact, that's when I got to learn really quickly, like, oh, my God, just going back to that place of feeling insignificant, feeling powerless. And he knows he can take me there because he feels like he knows my whole life story. Yeah. Because he's had that point of contact for so long. And he's like, you know, I can't believe you. Oh, you're telling this guy that like you know I'm gonna have you dealt with and like literally before we got to this conversation I was looking over this um court order that I have against him and I was like Jesus this is what I went through then he took me back there and he was telling me um, you're gonna be dealt with I'm gonna have you dealt with during this conversation is this in person this is the beauty of it for my situation ladies men anybody out there Record everything that these people are saying, like, if you're at a point of somebody threatening you, because that was the magic of it. Because, like, literally so many times he's threatened me, 
but I've never had it written down. And for some reason, he felt like it was okay this time after two years to say it online. He typed it on the internet. I saved it all. And the thing is, he was saying all this stuff to me at 8 a.m. in the morning, right when I'm going to work. And my job is like, you have to be smart to be there, you know what I mean? So I'm going to be there and thinking logically. So by the power of my job, I want to say, because their agency, like, really fell upon me, like, okay, it sounds like I have to call the police, you know? I have to be a solution solver there. Like, I have a master's. I have a great, great thing on the line. Um, and I would have never done that two years ago. And he's like, leave me the fuck alone. Um, so I take it, and I call 911 because I'm literally so afraid to go home after that. And I'm like, I really don't know what to do. And they're like, you got to go to the police office, and you got to file a report. Oh, my God. I get to the office, and I'm writing this thing. It looks like scribbles and all this stuff. And the reason I ended up doing that, basically, I think, like, you know, you're going into new territory now because we're not just talking about a stigma. But, like, the reason that I ended up doing this is because of my diagnosis. Like, I got this. I ended up telling his friend. And then his friend tells him, and he's like, I can't believe like, you're telling people that that's, that's what I have. But literally, I, I know I got it from him, and I have some proof from later on, but we might not, we might not get into that. Then at that point, it was like the last resort. It's like, you're not going to hurt me anymore. That's it. So I ended up going to court with him. I ended up winning a legal battle, and I know his friends were so pissed, you know, and that's what I was scared about. I ended up having to confront this demon, like I've been afraid of living life since, like for most of my 20s because of, because of this person. This concludes part one of two of the Believe Survivors episode of Something Positive for Positive People. I am currently about to go to sleep, actually, but... Um, I can't do things when I'm really tired, so I will not be finishing editing this episode. It was really, really long. Um, I did tell someone that I would have this episode up and running by today, so we're going to just break it out into two parts so that it's easier to listen to if you're someone who has survived any sort of abuse, sexual abuse, or domestic violence at all. Um, I encourage you to just take this as an opportunity to take a break. We may be triggering some emotions or past trauma um, and I want to just make sure that you guys feel as safe as possible when listening to this and that before you go over to the next episode allow yourself to just recharge um, I don't know that this is something that um, would require someone to take a long break from but just to be safe I think that it was best to break this really long episode out into two parts so um if this is something that you i don't want to say enjoy <laughs> if this is something that you found to be useful or helpful please share this with someone um, i'm going to have resources available in the show notes for people to refer to um, if they need any additional resources at all helping talk through abuse or talk uh, find even more resources that are going to help um, in any cases moving forward. So just check that out whenever you get a chance and please continue to rate, review, subscribe to and share this podcast anywhere you believe it to be useful so that we can just continue to get this content in front of the people who need it the most. Um, jump on over to part two 
Um, If you're new to the podcast, the typical format is just 25 to 35 minutes for an episode. Given that this one was recorded, um, the raw audio was 93 minutes, I believe. And I know that that can be really overwhelming to listen to, especially in one sitting. So I want to try and make this as easy to listen to as possible. Part two, where we conclude this episode, is going to take it to what happened to Jeannie in the court system and how she got uh, her version of what served justice looks like. Let's jump on over to part two whenever you get a chance.